0: This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Today we're going to be looking at Ephesians uh, chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, Ephesians chapter 2, that's where we will be turning our attention this morning. If you're new to the Bible, this is in the New Testament, so kind of go all the way toward the back and you will find Paul's letter to the Ephesians. By the way, I hope everybody sees and appreciates the genius, really, of the pastoral team. So as you sit here and contemplate a summer series in the Psalms, how do we start that series? With a message from Ephesians, of course. And then, toward the end of this series, what do you do? Well, of course, you preach from the book of Ephesians. Uh, do not worry, this is called 4D Chess, and this is the kind of leadership we bring to you. Uh, We we will uh, conclude the summer uh, series in the Psalms next week with Psalm 33 with Mike. Um, So I wanted to make sure you appreciated our genius. All kidding aside, as, as we read this passage together this morning, we are being taught something that is unique it is special, and it's special because we're going to be taught things that cannot be known from nature or science or just mere observation of human activity through the centuries. What we are going to read in just a few minutes is special. It's God himself speaking to you, speaking to me, and what he is doing In his word, in these words, is he's going to reveal profound realities to us. So let's read this passage. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this morning where we get to turn our attention to your word. We are confident that you want to bless your people. I pray that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, comfort us, convict us, and that we would be transformed by your word this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some of you may not know me, so I thought I would share a few personal details about myself, but then also make a little connection to our passage this morning. So I'm Kevin Shipp, my wife is Bethany Shipp, who most ladies probably know from Legacy. We have three children, Andrew, Evie, and Vera. Andrew got to spend his uh, first experience of Advance just uh, last weekend um, and can commend that uh, retreat to you. I've been a part of the church for over 20 years now and have had the privilege to serve as a bivocational pastor for over 11 years. And some people may not know this, but for my day job, I'm an engineer in Oak Ridge. And here's the weird thing about being an engineer in Oak Ridge. Everybody assumes I know everything that the government is doing. <laughs> they, they think I have this exhaustive knowledge of all the secrets the government has. And in fact, I have a close friend, he happens to be a senior pastor And some might describe this friend of mine as as sort of a borderline conspiracy theorist. (laughs) But he is 100% convinced that I know things. And he always asks me to give him something. He's always like, come on, come on, give me something. But he has a specific interest, and it's probably not what you would expect. It has nothing to do with Sasquatch. It's not about who really killed JFK. It's not whether or not there's a secret Illuminati bunker under the Denver airport. No, my my friend is convinced that I know the truth about aliens. So my friend says to me, he's like, "Come on, tell me. Where are they? What are we doing with them? I know you know." I usually just shake my head, roll my eyes, But then my friend, of course, isn't satisfied with that, and so he says, I know you're not supposed to tell me, and you signed all kinds of paperwork saying you won't tell, but you can trust me. (laughs) Just a little something. Of course, my response is, Bill! Or, sorry. (laughs) My response is, friend! I don't know anything about this, okay? Just leave me alone. And then, of course, my friend's response is, well, that's what they tell you to say. So I really can't win, but, but if, if we're honest, we all have this desire or craving for special knowledge. We all want to have insight into the inner workings of something that is typically veiled in mystery. We want to have that curtain opened up, and we want to peek to see what's inside. This is part of human nature. This is what drives all kinds of—spending uh, all kinds of money for uh, discovering things about the universe— And the reality is, as we look at these verses this morning, um, we are experiencing this. In this letter, God is revealing to us mysteries. He's revealing to us things that have been somewhat veiled in the past, but now he's making plain and clear before our eyes things about salvation, things about what we were like before we received salvation. In fact, David Pallison writes this about the whole letter To the Ephesians. He says, The letter to the Ephesians tears the door off of mysteries. The love of Christ beyond knowing, now known. The unfathomable riches of Christ, now fathomed. Things exceedingly far beyond all you can ask or imagine, now revealed in front of your eyes. And I trust that as we work our way through this passage this morning, you will be clear on what had before been but a mystery. We will see the wonderful reality of what God has done to save us from our sins. What we are going to see is how God's grace works. And in many ways, you are going to see your testimony on the pages of Scripture. Here's why I think Paul wrote these verses. And here's why I think God chose to preserve these specific verses in his word for the church today. I think God wants us as his redeemed people to marvel at the mystery of God's grace and to then walk in His ways. He wants us to marvel at the mystery of His grace and to walk in His ways. A couple of things, since we're not in the book of Ephesians, that I think it will be helpful to remind you of is, again, this letter is in the New Testament. It's a part of a set of letters that Paul wrote to various churches. Paul wrote this letter to clearly lay out the gospel of Christ and all of its implications for Gentile churches in Asia. These churches probably need, given their background, theological instruction, but also practical help. The letter is actually sort of dividable into two sections. The first three chapters spell out all the things God has done through Christ to save sinners. And then chapters 4 through 6 spell out for us, implications of this for the new life we have in Christ. The text we're reading this morning is in the middle of this first part. And in this text, Paul is addressing theological realities that have an enduring place in our life and our theology. These things transcend time and place. So with that said, let's look back at the passage and let's mine it for these mysteries. The first mystery that is revealed to us is found in verses 1 through 3, and it describes a very pitiful plight that each of us find ourselves in. Verse 1 says, And you were dead. The gospel is good news, but before it can be good news, it has to be honest about some pretty terrible news first. And this is the bad news. You and I and every human apart from Christ are dead. Why are we dead? Back in the passage, it says, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we were dead because of our sins. These trespasses and sins, these weren't just a lapse for us, something we did occasionally. This was a way of life for us. In other words, this is the way in which you once walked. But in what sense were we dead? How can someone who is dead be walking? What Paul is saying here is that apart from Christ, in our original condition, we are dead inwardly to the things of God. What we sometimes describe as spiritual death. We were outwardly physically alive, so we can walk and act and live and breathe and do these things, but inwardly, spiritually, we are dead because of our sin. And just like the infomercial guy would say, but wait, there's more. It is actually even worse than just this. The passage goes on to say, following the course of this world, we were of the world. We went along with our culture. We went along with the world in its sin and indifference to the things of God. In other words, we walked their way. We walked in the sins of the world. And to add to this, we learned that it's not just that we're dead in sin and that we were following the world. But it says, we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In our spiritual death, we were in cahoots, if you will, with Satan himself, the father of lies, the leader of all rebellion against God. We went along with this ungodly, demonic set of influences in the world. We were sons or children of disobedience right along with the world, and right along with Satan and his demonic lot. The passage continues, Among whom we all once lived. Again, we were living a lifestyle of sin and rebellion against God. This was a way of life for us. To put it paradoxically, we lived in spiritual death. The passage goes on to teach us, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Here, Paul is doing something. He's rounding out what I call this terrible trinity, keeping us captive to our sin and stuck in spiritual death. There's the world and its sinful influences. There's the devil. But then there is the the piece of this terrible trinity that is closest to home, our own sinful flesh. So each of us, apart from Christ, we're fallen, and by nature, we are sinners. And this is not our physical skin, as if our skin itself is bad or wrong. It's our internal inclination toward disobeying God and not giving Him the honor that He deserves. And so what is the end result of this living and walking in accordance with this terrible trinity? The passage continues. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We not only deserve God's wrath, it was central to our identity. We were sons or children of disobedience, and therefore we are now children or objects of God's wrath. We are wrath things. This obviously is a pretty hopeless, hopeless situation. Let's take a second and let the effect of this actually settle on us. If this is true, then this is saying that we are incapable of doing anything about this pitiful plight, this terrible predicament we're in. And the passage says, like the rest of mankind. So what that teaches us is that not only are we personally dead, but everybody else is too, so nobody can do anything to help us. This is truly a pitiful plight. Apart from Christ... Every human being, without exception, is spiritually dead and under God's righteous wrath. Our plight before we became Christians, before we were redeemed by Christ, is spiritual death. We weren't sick, merely needing some medicine and a little bit of time to recover. We weren't just weakened, needing some help. We weren't drowning needing a life preserver. We were dead. D-E-A-D, dead. And there was not a single thing you or anybody else could do to save you. As we think about this, it should be sobering to us and it should be humbling to us. But here's what's also remarkable about this truth, is that this has a great leveling effect. All human beings are in the same boat, apart from Christ. Jew, Gentile, white, black, brown, rich, poor, smart, simple, Republican, Democrat, Independent, or you know, pick your party. Volgator, Bama fans, we are all in the same boat. No matter what identity you choose, we have this pitiful plight in common, and this should humble us. For those who have been redeemed. The next time you're annoyed by the sinfulness or immaturity of an unbelieving family member, the next time you're tempted to lash out in self-righteousness and the sinfulness of our culture, we should remember this. Apart from Christ, we would be no different. They, just like me, just like you, need to be rescued. And praise the Lord, we know where to point them. We know the remedy. That brings us to mystery number two that is revealed for us in this passage, God's glorious grace. So now that we know this about ourselves, that we're spiritually dead and deserving of God's wrath, there's kind of two options, really. Either one, we're just doomed, or God's going to have to fix this. There's really no other options. And so what is it going to be, Paul? Tell us, what is it going to be? Verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy, this should be music to our ears when we hear these few words. What kind of God do we have? One that's only wrath? No, we have a God who is rich in mercy. He has mercy to spare. It's like mercy, his mercy is in a container and it is so full that it's busting out of the seams and spilling over such that it spills out on us. He can be lavish with his mercy. When I think about this, I think back to a cartoon I watched when I was growing up called DuckTales. And I know anybody in here between the ages of 35 and 45 watched this. And in this cartoon, you had Scrooge McDuck, who is extremely wealthy, taking care of, I guess, grandnephews. And Scrooge McDuck is rich. He's so rich that he has a giant tower of a money bin filled with coins that for fun he goes and swims in. He's so rich, money is not not even an object. It's just something he plays with. He swims in. This is the way God's mercy is. He has so much of it. You cannot exhaust it, and you cannot outrun his mercy. He can be lavish with it. Every mom that's watched one of their kids try to carry a bowl of cereal that's way too full, full of milk to the table to sit down and eat and Milk and cereal will go everywhere. It's spilling over like that. He can be lavish with it. And it continues. It says, Because of the great love with which he loved us. So what is moving God to show us mercy? It is his love for us. But here's the problem with this. Even if you go out into the culture, if they'll even be willing to use the word God Everyone assumes that God is loving. Like God's love is just a given. It's taken for granted. Everyone assumes that God is love. And of course he should love me because I'm so great. But this is what the passage says. It says, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. What's so amazing about God's response to us in our spiritual death is that he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and hostile towards him. This is what's so amazing about his love. This should shock us. God loved us when we were completely unlovable. We were deserving of his wrath. We were dead in our sin. So what did God's mercy and love for us in our pitiful plight lead him to do to condemn us and only condemn us? No. Paul breaks in here. It's like Paul's writing this letter Like he's preaching and he breaks in and he can't help himself and he goes straight to the punchline and he says, By grace you have been saved. So, what moved him to save us was his love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And Paul gets ahead of himself because he cannot wait to tell us, By grace you have been saved. But how exactly does this saving happen? How does this take place in our lives? I want to make sure that we, we get what this passage is teaching us right. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul makes it very clear how salvation works, he makes it very clear that God had been planning to redeem sinners from his wrath, from eternity past, and he explains how he deals with our sin. Ephesians 1-7 says, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We've just heard this in our songs. We've heard this in our communion. But I want to make sure it's crystal clear. First and foremost, before we talk about how God applies salvation to the individual, I want to talk about what Christ has done to pay the penalty for our sin. So each of us have sinned, as we've just reviewed. I don't think I need to belabor the point and stand before God in judgment. And God sent Christ into this world, and he lived as a man, lived an entire lifetime, was tempted in all the ways I am tempted that you are tempted, yet was without sin. And then he freely offered himself up on the cross where he bore the penalty that we deserve for our sin. It's this wonderful, glorious exchange where what we deserve, the wrath of God, gets poured out on Christ... And what he deserves, which is to be exalted above all things, we actually get to be a part of now. But this does not come to us automatically. So Christ died on the cross to bear the penalty for our sin, and the way you and I get in on the benefits of this is by faith in Christ. And what we're going to see as we work our way through the remainder of this passage is how God gets that done. This is what it says in this passage. It says, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What? (laughs) What does that mean? What is he saying here? Made us alive together with Christ. We got that. He's given us spiritual life and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What is Paul talking about here? How can he say that we've been raised and are seated with Christ in heavenly places? Unless I've missed something or we're having some kind of massive corporate hallucination, I'm not sitting with Christ in heaven, are you? So what is he talking about here? How can he say we have been raised with him and seated with him in heavenly places? This is what Paul is saying. The way you and I have been given new life and are being saved from the wrath of God is by being united to Christ by faith. In this union with Christ, we become the beneficiaries of Christ's death and resurrection. In this union, what is said of Christ can now be said of us. He died to pay the penalty for sin, so when he died, we died to sin. He was raised from the dead. We have been raised to a new life, in our inner being. We are now spiritually alive by this union with Christ. We are now righteous in God's sight. So what is His righteousness is now given to us. We are set apart and sanctified as His beloved children. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and we are therefore seated with Him. In other words, we have a seat at the Father's table. We, in Christ now have access to the father sounds a little overrealized, doesn't it but this is true we have this place we have this assurance but the reality is even though we have been raised with christ we've been given new life we still live in this fallen world though our inner man or inner selves have new life and are being renewed day by day our outer man is still battling in this world So we have new desires, new affections. We still experience, though, the temptation of the flesh that we inhabit. And we await the resurrection of our bodies and really the renewal of everything. This is just like a bride eagerly awaiting her wedding day. There's a certain day coming where all these things are going to be consummated, but we still wait in this life, in this body. Here's what this means. This maybe helps explain your experience as a Christian. This is why, as a Christian living in this fallen world, you're always going to experience some degree of tension in your soul. We have these new affections, we have this new life in Christ, but we're not physically with Him yet. Here's what I want to hold out to you. If you have no tension, if you feel no tension between your inner life, your inner desires, your affections, and the world around you, you might still be in verses 1 through 3. But if you are experiencing this tension, and you're tempted to doubt God's love for you, you're tempted to believe that He truly has saved you, the presence of that tension should give you great joy. It should give you assurance that you have been given new spiritual life, and therefore you find yourself uncomfortable in A sinful world. The good news for the Christian is that we now have access to the Father and we can experience victory over this terrible Trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil, all because of Christ and all because of our union with Him. But it does get better than that. Why did God do this? Why did He choose to save us? This passage actually gives us two answers that are related. The first answer he gives us is found in the next part of the passage. It says, He saved us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is what this passage is teaching us. God saves us in Christ by an unimaginable outpouring of his grace so that on top of that, He can overwhelm us with the continual outpouring of his grace in Christ for all eternity. In other words, he shows us grace so that we now have the capacity to get more grace. He's just going to keep piling in it and piling it and piling it on. Do you see how wonderful this is? This is amazing grace. We should marvel at this grace. If if you're relatively new to the church... Have you wondered why sometimes our singing, our our times of corporate singing get a little rowdy? Why we are loud, sometimes maybe people even yell out a little bit and people put their hands in the air. Maybe you've been hit by somebody as they've been uh, getting a little physical with their singing and with their worship. This is why. This is why our worship is rowdy, why it should get rowdy is because of this reality that we have been shown grace And we've been shown grace so that we can be shown more grace. This is the type of salvation and the type of grace that gets me up out of my chair. Okay? It makes me want to raise my hands and sing at the top of my lungs. As I I sat and read this passage in preparation for this sermon, it just hit me so clearly. This is the type of God that we serve, and His glory demands to be proclaimed. I know that with the busyness and trials of life, it's easy to get distracted. It's easy for our affections to grow cold or even to start to doubt God's grace, to know in our heads that all of these things about God and his grace are true, but not delight in them, not feel them. I, I've certainly been there. If you want to hear the story, grab me sometime. I could, I could give you a long list of experiences where this has been a, a challenge for me. This is why we need Sundays. We need to be here on Sundays. We need to minimize distractions. And we need to hear God's word. When your pastors stand up here and preach, ignore the person. The word of God is being brought to you. And you need to hear God's word preached. I need to hear God's word preached. It's through his word that faith is birthed and strengthened. And as we're here together on Sunday mornings, we actually get to proclaim his majesty and his worth in our singing. This is, this is an unbelievable privilege. His glory demands to be proclaimed, and you and I get to do that on Sundays as we sing. This is also why we need community groups. We need to be able to be with God's people and we need to be able to proclaim to one another the glorious grace of God, remind each other of these truths of actual reality and we need people to do that to us. This is why we need community groups. This is why we need to be there. So this is the mystery of God's glorious grace revealed to us. God loved us when we didn't deserve it and he has made us alive with Christ by uniting us to him by faith. So this does beg a question, though. Where, do, where does our activity, where, where do our works fit into this whole equation? It's clear, it's pretty clear that salvation is by something other than our works. And this is where Paul teaches us this third mystery as to why we do work as God's children. Beginning in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So Paul gets back to this basic theological summary that he sort of couldn't hold back earlier in the passage. And he says, "Christ, We have been saved in Christ. This is by grace through faith. So God, in this generous outpouring of His grace imparts the gift of faith to us and then through this faith we are united to Christ. So faith is the instrument. It's not, it's not something we're, we're not earning anything with God by our faith. It's the instrument through which we receive salvation and then now in union with Christ we receive all these benefits of Christ's work that we've discussed. And then Paul says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God, period. You can end the sentence there. This is not earned, not deserved. It is freely given, as we've already seen, because God loves us, because God loves you. So, where do works fit into this whole picture? It's almost like Paul is trying to be so clear to people like me who can tend to miss it and be hard headed. He explicitly says, not a result of works. We are not given faith, shown grace, and we do not experience salvation in new life because of something we have done, because of any good works we have done. Remember, we were dead in sin. The the result of our works was precisely the opposite of being welcomed into God's presence. Our works are what led to our condemnation. We were children of wrath because all we can muster in our spiritual death, apart from Christ, remember, was living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So why did God set up salvation in such a way that doesn't include any works? I mean, theoretically, God could have done it any way he wanted to if you're into sort of hypothetical thinking. Psalm 115.3 could even justify this. God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Paul tells us something incredible in verse 9. And it explains the ultimate reason God set up salvation to work the way it works. And here it is. If you remember anything else that is said this morning, remember this. So that no one may boast. God planned and executed our redemption in such a way that all of the glory goes to God and none is reserved for anyone else. Any understanding of salvation, any interpretation of God's word, as it relates to salvation that preserves in any way a place for human boasting, is wrong. All human boasting is excluded. Salvation is all of grace, and it is all because of Christ and for His glory." That is the glorious news of the gospel that we proclaim week in and week out. This is what Paul has been working toward, so that no one may boast. Everything that's been going on in eternity past, in the present, and into eternity future is really about one thing. It's really about one person, actually, and that is the person of Christ. God's goal in redemption is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth, so that the risen Christ might reign over all and receive glory forever and ever and ever and ever. That is what is motivating God in saving us by grace. If you remember verse 7, I said, God saves us in Christ by this unimaginable outpouring of His grace so that on top of that, He can overwhelm us with this continual outpouring of His grace in Christ for all eternity. And it is for this outpouring of grace that we will praise Christ forever. It will be a never-ending renunciation of all human boasting and a continual pouring out of praise to the risen Christ. This is the future that is now secure for us. What we see then when we look at verse 7 and we look at this statement by Paul is that God's glory and our good are now inextricably linked. Okay, We are now wrapped up into His eternal purposes. So I want to ask a question. Do you ever struggle with being certain or sure that God loves you? Or struggle with whether or not he is committed to you in doing you good? Maybe after you've sinned or you realize that your heart has grown cold toward him. Or maybe you're experiencing a trial that just seems completely hopeless. Maybe you even feel like you've been abandoned by him. These verses are meant to speak to you. These verses are meant to minister and help you. Please listen to this. Verse 4 teaches that God loved you when you were at your worst. By uniting you with Christ, God has gone all in with you. Your destiny is sealed. You have a seat at His table that is kept there for you by Christ. He will be faithful to you. He is with you. Because you are united to Christ, God is as committed to you and your good as he is to displaying his eternal glory. Because you are united to Christ, God is as committed to you and your good as he is to displaying his eternal glory. Again, this is what we're going to spend all eternity praising him for. So where do works come into the picture of this? Paul continues. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is almost hilarious to me because he's made it very clear that salvation is all of grace. There are no works involved. But then he even says, and the works that you do now because you're my child, well, I'm doing those too. I'm the one fitting you for these. I'm the one sort of recreating and recrafting you and preparing you for all these good works. This is where God's purpose in our salvation comes into focus for the day-to-day. He saved us and has planned in advance for each one of us a lifetime of good works that we're called to walk in. So works are the fruit of our new life in Christ. They are not the root or basis of our new life in Christ. In other words, we are not saved by good works, but for good works. Now that we're reconciled to him, good works are the privilege that we get to do. It's what we are crafted and made for in this life. So in other words, we no longer walk in the ways of this terrible trinity that we saw at the opening of the passage, we now are able and equipped to walk in his ways. We walk in a new life, and this is a wonderful privilege that we are welcomed into his family and now are wrapped up into his purposes, and we have these good works to walk in. The rest of the book of Ephesians really fleshes out what this means, and I commend To each of you, a fresh reading of, of the book of Ephesians. But here's kind of a summary of what this means. These are the good works we're to walk in. In the relationships and circumstances he's placed you, seek to be diligent and faithful to walk in his ways. Be imitators of God. Live lives of holiness. Examples of this, flee wicked speech, flee sexual immorality, flee idolatry. As a member of the church, think, speak, and live in such a way that builds up the body and gives grace to others. As you go to community group this week, be ready to think, speak, and live in such a way that builds others up. Paul teaches, husbands, love your wives and lay down your life for them. Wives, submit to and follow your husband's godly leadership. Parents, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children, honor and obey your parents. If you're an employer, treat your employees with kindness and fairness. If you're an employee, serve your employer, work hard as unto the Lord. Just simply put, walk in His ways. Live lives that speak to the glory of Christ by walking in obedience. Sometimes I think we can, be, we can miss the joys of simple obedience, the joys of simply seeking to be faithful where God has placed us and in the roles and giftings that He's given us. This is what we do now as his redeemed people. Not as a way to have his favor, but because we already have it secure in Christ. So what we've seen in this passage really are, are, is God revealing these mysteries to us, this understanding of our salvation. This is your testimony. This is my testimony. This is our shared testimony of how we became God's beloved children. And this explains for us this new resurrection life that we have in Christ. So I want to encourage each of us, let, let's stand in awe and marvel at the mystery of God's grace. Let's, let's reject all opportunities for boasting in ourselves. Let, let's exclude all human boasting in our lives as His children. God is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our lives, our passion. Let's walk in His ways. And I think what we will see is as we marvel at God's grace and walk in his ways, Christ is going to be exalted in our midst. And we are going to experience deep and abiding joy as his people together. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for this passage. We're grateful for being reminded of this wonderful salvation that you have worked in our lives. Thank you for imparting to us new life. I pray that you would give each of us grace to walk in the works that you've prepared for us. I pray that the words of our mouths, the thoughts in our minds, our actions toward one another in the church and to those outside the church, I pray that these would be pleasing to you and that you would receive glory. Lord, receive glory now as we return to singing. Lord, we want Christ to be exalted We want his name to be lifted high for all to see. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.